0: Hi there and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 25th Annual Newsome Meeting of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. Cardiac arrest causes neurological injury through a sustained period of hypoxia and ischemia. It has long been thought that avoiding further hypoxia could save vulnerable brain tissue, leading to the common practice of hyperoxia. However, recent research has suggested this approach may in fact be harmful. Paul Young is an intensivist and world renowned critical care researcher from Wellington in New Zealand, and he joins me to discuss an upcoming study which will further explore this issue the Logical Study. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Paul, um, after a hypoxic ischemic brain injury, um, there's obviously. Um, neurological tissue that's at risk or thought to be at risk and the concern has always been that further hypoxia may make this worse Uh, hence the practice of giving people high concentrations of oxygen was there ever any evidence to support this practice
1: Uh, no not really i mean i think the pathogenesis of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is sort of two hits right so the first hit is oxygen deprivation and the second hit is reperfusion injury, and so actually, I think, if if anything, from a pathophysiological perspective, the the more worrying thing has been that that reperfusion and that sudden you know delivery of oxygen to the brain after a period of ischemia might well be an important component of the pathogenesis of. Um, brain injury Um, and there's quite a lot of basic science data to to support that as being mechanistically what happens Um, and I guess the thing that's sort of logically grown from that over the course of a decade or or more has been a a question about whether giving less oxygen might actually mitigate reperfusion injury and improve patient outcomes. So that
0: basic science level that you were talking about what are the mechanisms where that increased oxygen might actually cause worsening of of brain injury?
1: Yeah so it's really just about generation of of oxygen free radicals right so oxygen is an inherently toxic molecule it's a it's a highly um reactive chemical and and in a way our, our entire body is operating to to sort of protect us from the toxic effects of of oxygen you know like our cells are actually operating in general in an environment where the oxygen is low and tightly controlled and there's um you know, a whole series of, of um, systems that are in, pr- in place to balance the oxidative um, or the generation of oxygen free radicals with reduction, right? So when you get in a situation where the toxicity of oxygen overwhelms the detoxifying mechanisms, that, that sort of defines oxidative stress. And so the idea is that after you've had this deprivation of oxygen then when you get this flood of oxygen back that you are exposed to oxidative stress and that oxidative stress can then um, persist for many hours or even many days um, and that during that period of Of oxidative stress that you might be vulnerable to cell and tissue damage uh, particularly if you're given oxygen liberally.
0: Is it known whether it's the um, interruption of those antioxidant effects or the effect of the higher concentration of oxygen being delivered to the tissues or a combination of both? It's probably a
1: combination of both of those things right that's contributing to the reperfusion injury I mean obviously our brains in the absence of a period of um, of oxygen deprivation are not vulnerable to the oxidative stress you know yep. like you can breathe hundred percent oxygen and you, nothing terrible is going to happen to you yep. for a for reasonable a period of time <laughs> right but not forever um, and so I think there is sort of something about the um damaged vulnerable brain which perhaps makes it susceptible to um oxidative injury and presumably that's about the um reductive mechanisms being damaged so
0: um
1: obviously that's not the only tissue of relevance
0: either um are we aware of the effects of hyperoxia on other tissue states
1: yeah so i mean i think it's um there's two kind of critical things i think one is that for the lungs the lungs are bearing both i mean they get a direct exposure To the oxygen, right? So, so the amount of um, oxygen delivery that occurs to the lung tissue, if you're breathing a really high FiO2, is much much greater than in the other peripheral tissues, right? Because you've got this whole cascade of oxygen that's occurring by the time it gets to the mitochondria elsewhere. So that that's potentially a relevant thing. I mean, we know that high amounts of oxygen do contribute to atelectasis, for example, and it's a direct pulmonary complication. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens to the other organs um, in the cardiac arrest situation, I think is a little bit, um, little bit unclear and maybe a little bit complicated, right? So one of the things about, um, about the amount of oxygen is it does affect your um, blood flow. So you know it can change your coronary blood flow, but if you're thinking about the heart, it's also it also has a sort of um, beta blocker analogous effect. So a high level of oxygen will slow your heart rate in the same way that a beta blocker does, and that might might actually afford protection in the setting of myocardial ischemia because it's reducing myocardial work you know obviously if you have cardiogenic shock then that might be bad but but also the flip side of it right is that if you've got um, impaired tissue oxygen delivery on an ongoing basis from cardiogenic shock then actually restriction of oxygen might not be good either. Yep. So, so it is actually, you know, like, like a lot of the time in science, right, if you really drill down on it, there's no real black and white. There's, there's shades of grey. But, but we do know that in people who've had a cardiac arrest, the thing that predominates in terms of determining what, what will happen to them is their brain injury. Yep. and so the the sort of hypothesis that reducing oxygen ameliorating reperfusion injury you know that 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 might lead to an improvement in neurological outcome is sort of a compelling n- narrative yep. yep so outside
0: the context of hypoxic ischemic injury yeah is there any evidence that using higher than normal oxygenemia is causing damage to the brain or is it something specific about that context of hypoxic ischemic injury that makes it more susceptible
1: yeah so I mean there's 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 quite a lot of unknowns in there right so so if you look at the people who didn't have a hypoxic brain injury who were in ICU rocks but had other forms of brain injury. So by point estimate, the people who were allocated to liberal oxygen, I think the absolute mortality rate is about eight percentage points lower than the people allocated to liberal oxygen. Um, and and a a lot of those diseases are characterized by situations where you have Impaired cerebral vascular autoregulation. regulation yep. And you have low brain tissue oxygen delivery or bl- low brain tissue oxygenation, yep. which you can make go up by giving oxygen more liberally. So w- when, when it comes to randomised control trial data, looking at whether giving oxygen liberally to people with non-HIE type brain injuries is good or bad, that the, there's very, very little in the literature. So yep. it's, it's sort of anybody's guess, yep. but it is plausible in my mind that um, the whole brain ischemia reperfusion situation might actually be the opposite to, you know, the subarachnoid hemorrhage, the traumatic brain injury, stuff like that. Those groups of patients might do better with with more oxygen. Yeah. Yep.
0: So, in addition to the signal that was seen in ICU rocks, yep. what other evidence is there around this in hypoxic ischemic brain injury?
1: Yeah, so there's quite a bit of data now. So, um, you know, around 10 years ago, maybe just a little bit more than that ago, I was involved in a systematic review and meta-analysis of animal data, which basically just looks at liberal peri-resuscitation oxygen or conservative peri-resuscitation oxygen and then um, functional um outcomes for various animals and also histological stuff and it's pretty clear from those animal data that you know giving it liberal oxygen close to the time of resuscitation from brain injury and that means 100% oxygen as opposed to uh, giving oxygen less liberally mm-hmm. um, that, that, that strategy increases Histological evidence of brain injury, yeah. and and results in um, you know measured behaviours and function that's worse in, in those animals. Yeah. There are observational data um, where um, associations between oxygen levels at various points and outcomes have been recorded, but actually um, the sort of the, those studies are sort of contradictory, um, and and to be honest, I think there's sort of an ov- overwhelming confounding is likely in the data sets, because right. I think it's very, very likely that the people who have terrible cardiogenic shock and the pulse oximeter doesn't work, the FiO2 gets turned up because the pulse oximeter gives you a low number yep. and then the blood gas that you take then shows the PaO2 is 500 and then the people with a PaO2 of 500 are more likely to die yep. because their heart wasn't working enough to make the pulse oximeter go. Yep. You know? yep. And so even if that's not the whole story it's sort of unimaginable that that confounding doesn't affect those data and so I think in the end it sort of renders those retrospective observational studies uninterpretable yeah you know you can tell a story and you can write a paper and you know but what it means for truth and reality is anybody's guess yeah um but we do now have um, a high-quality randomized trial. So the box trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine is a good trial, looking at more oxygen versus less oxygen. It's a comparatively small study, um, and it's done in two centres only in Scandinavia. And there's a couple of things about the study that I that for my um money are quite important so one is that those two centers you know the the mortality that they reported is extraordinarily low you know so they have cardiac arrest patients who on average have got a return of spontaneous circulation of like 21 minutes which is pretty normal for a large-scale cardiac arrest trial but they have a survival to hospital discharge with favorable outcome of like 70%, which is 20 percentage points higher than any other pivotal trial of cardiac arrest. And so I don't know what the thing is that's happening in those two centers in Scandinavia that did that trial, but it does make you wonder whether the results are generalizable. Yeah. So I mean, in broad terms, what they showed was that the conservative oxygen regimen and the liberal oxygen regimen um, made no difference to your chances of um, survival to hospital discharge with a good outcome, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing which I also think is quite important is that their oxygen regimen, um, you know, that they targeted a specific PaO2 range, um, but they they didn't let the oxygen levels, you know, get particularly low. So the SpO2 had to always be kept, I think it's 92 I think it would be kept higher than 92% all the time. Yep. Um, And because they're intermittently sampling blood gases to drive their, um, you know, titration, there's actually nothing in the protocol that mitigates hyperoxemia between the gases. You know, so they're measuring the gases Six hours or whatever, but, but there's actually nothing to stop you from having periods in, in between those gases where y- you have sets of 100% and where the patients are being exposed to hyperoxemia that you're not aware of. And, and even based on the um, intermittent sampling that they did. There's a lot of patients in the conservative arm that are exposed to a PaO2 of over 100. So, if you compare that to what happens and happened in the um, icy rocks trial, and what we're doing in the in the logical trials, so our intervention is to use the lowest FiO2 possible all of the time to achieve um, a saturation that's 91% or or more and we have an upper limit saturation alarm that sounds when the SpO2 hits 95. So the intervention that we are testing has a much greater likelihood I think of avoiding exposure to hyperoxemia and so i guess it it remains possible in in my mind that that although the interventions are similar that they're different in ways that might be important given the pathogenesis what we're talking about so I mean, it it remains to be seen, I guess, but for my mind, um, you know, I think a a two-centre study is probably not not enough to answer the question.
0: Is there a thought about what uh, paO2 would potentially be toxic is there a threshold effect here or is there uh, is it a continuum of exposure I, I don't
1: I mean I don't know the answer to that I, yeah I don't know the answer to that I mean I think the thing is that the observational studies that have explored associations have tested various cutoffs but actually the the thing that's determined those cutoffs has been the data sets right so they use the cutoffs because they are the cutoffs that appeared in the data set yeah that doesn't actually um, have any biological rationale yeah um, and I think in in general terms I think when you kind of think about what actually happens it's probably continuous right so this probably um, I mean, it's believable that there's some sweet spot of, of of risk where if it's if it's lower and you're hypoxemic, that's bad, and if you're higher and, and it's more hyperoxemic, that's bad. And that nadir PO2 it might be might be fifty, it might be sixty, it might be eighty, it might be ninety, it might be might be a hundred. I, I I don't don't think we know. Yep. But I think if I was going to guess I would say that it's, it's likely in this disease to be lower than in other disease states. Yeah.
0: So for, as a researcher how do you deal with that issue because you're going to compare two interventions yeah. which could be opposite each other on that u-shaped curve as it yeah. were <clears throat> ultimately show no difference but there is a potential benefit at a different number. So how do you incorporate that into your study design?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess the, there's different ways of doing it, right? So if you look at the box trial, what they've done is they've said, well, what about, we'll look at this target and this target. And, and I guess one of the difficulties that comes with that approach is that if you look at this target and this target and you say, well, I don't actually do either of those in my <laughs> usual practice, so now what do I do, right? Mm. Um, The alternative is to say, um, well, one of the arms is standard care, right? So it's just what you just do, what you usually do. Um, And then the other arm is an intervention of something. And so what we've done in the logical trial is we've made the intervention, um, an intervention that systematically aims to give the lowest inspired oxygen concentration all of the time to achieve whatever saturation goal the clinician um, determines is appropriate, yeah. right? So where there's no goal prescribed, then it's sort of greater than 91%. But if the clinician thinks that, that less is better, that, then we sort of allow that. And so you're totally right. You know, like, in the end, the answer might be that we... Um, we test one number and we test another number and the best number is the third number but actually um, for cardiac arrest patients many of them don't have anything wrong with their lungs and so what that actually means is that a large proportion of the hours that they spend um, in the intensive care unit in the conservative arm are uh, mm. spent breathing 21% oxygen. Yeah. So for, um, for the cardiac arrest group, that number in the conservative arm is like close to 50%. Mm. So uh, I think no one would say uh, hypoxic gas mixture is good, probably. Yeah. I mean, that would be yeah. pretty out there. Yeah. Um, and so I think in our, in our study um, w- when we're probably going to end up with people on an Fi to 0.21 for 50% of the time you're not going to be able to say you should have gone l- lower um, and so I guess if it's about reperfusion injury and that sort of thing, we're going to be doing everything that you could do to mitigate that. Yep. And and if that doesn't improve outcomes then I think the biological plausibility that shifting I don't know let's say that we end up with an average pao2 of I don't know 65 the, the biological plausibility in my mind of of having an improvement in the outcome by shifting the pao2 from 65 to 70 is pretty low. Yeah low not zero but it's slow.
0: yep so you mentioned the logical trial a little earlier can you tell us a bit more about that
1: yeah so the logical trial is um well I guess the easiest place to start probably is where it fits into the overall program right so we're doing a um an international trial of a little bit more oxygen versus a little bit less oxygen in patients who Require unplanned invasive mechanical ventilation. Yep. That's the Megarox trial, and it's kind of predicated on the notion that for a treatment like oxygen, a really small treatment effect matters because it's a treatment that we apply widely. So that study has um, 40,000 people in it, yep. and um, we we kind of also recognize that if you look at the existing trials that they don't really account for the possibility that some patients might do better with more oxygen and some patients might do better with less and so we've sort of anticipated and planned for um heterogeneity of treatment effect so we believe on the basis of the data that it's um plausible that people with sepsis do better if they get more oxygen. We think it's plausible that people who've had a cardiac arrest do better if they get less oxygen. And we think it's plausible that people with other brain injuries do better if they get more oxygen. And so within the sort of overall um, uh, MegaRox 40,000 sample size envelope, we've got three parallel trials that are sort of all individually powered to address these different hypotheses in these different subgroups. Yep. Um, the Megarox hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy trial, which is the whole uh, cardiac arrest cohort internationally, um, mm-hmm. is going to end up having around about maybe 4,500 people in it. Yep. And so there will be all of the people who are deemed to be at risk of having a hypoxic ischemic cephalopathy episode mm-hmm. who are in the MEGAROX trial yeah. in every country yeah. um, but because the MEGAROX trial to be a 40,000 patient trial has required compromises for the um, MEGAROX HIE trial we will only have the same data set that we have for every other patient so that'll tell us about their baseline FiO2 it'll tell us what people thought their admission diagnosis was what the system was and you know how long they stayed in the hospital before they were randomized and how old they are and stuff like that but it won't include the really important predictors of outcome for people who've had a cardiac arrest yeah and the primary outcome for mega is is um, in hospital mortality censored at 90 days so for cardiac arrest patients there's a pretty clear argument that it's not just about whether you're dead or not yeah. so the idea with the um, logical trial is it's actually a nested trial within mega hie yeah so it's kind of a nested trial that's nested within a nested trial <laughs> um, and so what we've done is for the mega hie participants who are enrolled in australia and new zealand at the time they get randomized in the sites that are doing logical they're automatically included in the logical trial yep. So the intervention and the comparator are identical. And so what effectively happens when you get enrolled in the logical trial is within the study website it actually just creates a whole bunch of extra data fields for you, you to complete. Right. So we have all of the baseline data that matter for cardiac arrest patients. You know, is it a witnessed arrest? What's the initial rhythm? What's the low flow low flow time? blah, 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 we've got all the information about important co-interventions, like, you know, did you give therapeutic hypothermia? What neuroprognostic testing did you do? And then the primary outcome for the logical trial is survival with a favourable neurological outcome at six months. And so that the logical trial is basically powered for an effect On that outcome which is around about half of what we saw in ICU rocks. So in ICU rocks we saw by point estimate a difference in the survival with a favourable neurological outcome in favour of low oxygen of 13 percentage points and in the um, logical trial we're powered to detect a difference of 8 percentage points. um, even though it's sort of a nested trial conducted within a nested trial it's still going to be a much larger trial than the box trial and as opposed to being conducted in two centres it's being conducted in about 50 centres yep. so it should increase the generalizability sort of increases the power and it also um, you know, takes it to an outcome variable that probably does matter more than than the outcome of hospital discharge, which was yep. their primary outcome.
0: So whereabouts are you in this process, when can clinicians uh hope to hear some results that will guide their practice?
1: Yeah, so so one of the beautiful things about the logical trial being embedded within the Megarox trial is the Megarox trial is just enrolling everyone who's getting unplanned invasive mechanical ventilation, and and because the patients are so frequent, and the intervention is simple, it's very easy for the trial to be front of mind. And clinicians and research coordinators are doing a really, really good job of enrolling patients, yeah. right? So where I get emails every every time a patient gets enrolled, and I get you know 25 emails every every day at the moment for patients being enrolled and because the logical kind of inclusion is automated within mega rocks the recruitment is just totally linear you know so in in new zealand actually we had been running mega rocks for some time when we started logical so we basically had mega rocks up and running full steam and then we just turned logical on and so if you look at the recruitment graph in new zealand for logical it's just an absolute straight steady line um in australia it's kind of done this because the number of sites both in mega and simultaneously in logical has gone up over time yep um, but we've now passed um we've now passed uh 700 out of 1400 patients enrolled mm-hmm. Um, and we're enrolling about um, about 50 patients a month. Yep. So, I mean, we will certainly finish recruitment uh, early next year, um, and then we'll have sort of a six-month follow-up period before we get to the primary outcome yep. um, data point. Um, and I sort of suspect that as quite likely that in, in the end um, that Megarox and the logical trial will be um, finished at a similar time point and most likely will be published in 2025. Yep. That, that's my best guess. So just
0: to conclude and wrap up, mm. um, let me pose a clinical scenario. I have a cardiac arrest and have a 20-minute resuscitation and an unconscious on arrival of, uh, at the hospital. What should I be asking that my O2 be set to?
1: <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the trial. So, I mean, I think, I think extreme things, are you can rule those out, right? So I don't think you want to be hypoxemic. Right. So I would say that um, it, it's probably not reasonable on the basis of what we know at the moment to have oxygen saturations that are um, less than 90 and it's probably not reasonable to have a PaO2 that's less than say 55. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly I think uh, you know, if your um, PaO2 is getting up sort of over 150 I think that's probably not reasonable. Yeah. Within the bounds of those things, I, I think we simply don't actually know and and I think um, you know, I, I guess uh, if you were in a center that was doing the trial, then I would say the best thing is to be in the trial. Um, and that's not just because I think you know I want to have everyone in the trial, it's because actually, one of the things we haven't touched upon is that the trial does have an element of adaptive randomization. So based on the accrued data, um, the, the chances of being allocated to the oxygen regimen that looks like it's best um, increases as the trial goes on. So if you're enrolled in the trial, you benefit from those accrued data, and I don't know what those data show. But because we genuinely don't know, um, I think having a, having a sort of randomised treatment where the coin is favoured and, and weighting of the data is the best approach.
0: I'll make sure I have my cardiac arrest in the right place. Paul Young, <laughs> thanks for joining us once again.
1: No trouble. Thanks uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast
0: today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all of our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, articles and videos by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.